Isaiah chapter 62. Did I say 61 before? Okay, good. Because it's not 61, it's 62. Isaiah chapter 62. We're almost to the end of the book. And what a book it's been. Isaiah 62, beginning in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land anymore be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest. Till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord is sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies, and the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored, but those who have gathered it shall eat it. And praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in in my holy courts. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him, and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. In chapter 61, Isaiah proclaims the promise of a Savior, a Savior's anointing. The Savior would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He describes the mission of the Savior. He would preach to the poor. He's going to heal the brokenhearted. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captive. He's going to proclaim the year of God's salvation, the coming judgment. He is going to provide comfort for all who mourn and grieve. He promises new garments, clothing, garments of beauty, garments of gladness, garments of joy. Garments of praise. That's the faithful fall fashion lineup. Now, Isaiah gives the reader a series of assurances. In chapter 62, salvation or redemption or reconciliation is 
assured because of God's word. The Lord won't keep silent. The holy city will shine. The righteous will be revealed. The city will be given a new name by the Lord. It will undergo a complete transformation. The holy city will become a valuable possession to the Lord. It's described like a crown or a diadem. The city will no longer be called deserted. The city will no longer be called desolate. He moves from the time of desolation to a time of delight. The city will be renamed Hephzibah, or my delight in her, and Beulah, which means married one. So if chapter 61 describes the beginning of a new life, chapter 62 continues with what I would call the bestowing of a new name. Salvation is assured because of God's word. Salvation is reaffirmed because of the believer's proclamation. The watchmen must not remain silent. They must call on the Lord. And the invitation is to call on the Lord in the morning, during the day, at night, day and night. Prayers are made. So the invitation is to hold God and this is going to, this, this sounds shocking. If it weren't in the Bible, I would be reluctant to even use this kind of language because it's so, it seems so wrong. But because Isaiah uses the language, I'm going to repeat it. He invites you to hold God accountable for his promises. He invites you to cry out to God and say, you've made a promise. Keep your promise. You've made a promise. Keep your promise. You've made a promise. Keep your promise until the promise comes true. And so the Lord makes a promise that the Jews will labor and will worship in the land. And it will be, it will be a land of peace. And salvation is assured because of the Lord's worldwide summons and invitation to prepare the way, to build a highway of salvation. And so again, we're encouraged to tell God, keep your promise. We're encouraged to tell God, praise the Lord. We're encouraged to speak to Him, to pray to Him, to pray and to pray in such a way that you pray and pray and pray and pray until God answers your prayer. We united prayer for a revival because we must. And look at the assurance of God's salvation. Look at, again in verse 1. Now, don't be discouraged. We've got 12 verses, but you're going to be looking at the clock and you're going to go, what's going on here? Five minutes are going to tick by and ten minutes are going to tick by and we're going to still be on verse 1 and you're going to go, what's going on? But you have to understand this first verse in order to understand the other 11. Look what it says. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Understand that God has determined that Zion and Zion becomes an Old Testament word for 
the place where God's glory dwells. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes another name for that city where God's glory is manifest and proclaimed. God has determined that Zion would be a beacon of light to a watching world. And so here, Zion and Jerusalem become a picture of what it means to have true faith in God. Now, again, does this mean the real Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem? I think that there's an immediate prophetic implication because a real Savior will come to a real Jerusalem. You'll remember in the New Testament when John the Baptist shows up. And remember, he says to everyone, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the paths. But there's also a spiritual Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. We know that there's a physical Jerusalem. We know that there's a spiritual Jerusalem. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, the writer of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. And so in, in, in chapter 62, where it says, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation is a lamp that burns. The idea is that the Lord God, through Isaiah, is speaking and the Lord is speaking and the Lord is looking us squarely in the eye. And he's looking at us specifically and deeply. And he's saying, look, I'm going to, to come to clean you. He's, he's basically saying, look, I'm going to come clean with you. I'm going to come clean with you. I'm going to make you clean. I can't keep quiet. I cannot rest. I am going to make a provision of salvation. It is going to happen. I am going to redeem you. I am going to forgive you. I am going to reconcile you. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, you'll remember... The writer of Hebrews says, let your conduct be without covetousness. That means behave in such a way that you don't want stuff that you don't really need. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself, speaking of the Lord Jesus, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So what does that mean? When the Lord Jesus looks you in the eye and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never means never, 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 never in any circumstance whatsoever will I leave you or will I fail you. The fact that God cannot, will not lie, God cannot and will not fail, listen carefully, is his passionate gladness. Have you ever made a promise and you didn't keep your promise? You meant to. You might have even thought you had the resources to. Look, I said I would do it and I'll do it. But you didn't do it. You broke your promise. God is incapable of making a promise 
that he can't keep. Zion is supposed to be a lighthouse. Zion is supposed to be a burning beacon of light. Now, I want you to understand what's happening. Remember what I've already told you, that the children of Israel are going to be, the the children of Judah and Jerusalem, they're going to be captured. They're going to be taken to Babylon. They're going to be placed beside the river Euphrates. Their life is going to seem like it's completely wiped out. And so here, here, the Lord reminds them that they're supposed to be this burning beacon of light. What's happened? What's happened? How is it that people look at Zion and they look at Jerusalem and they look at Israel and they can't see salvation? This becomes important for us because that's exactly what we are supposed to be. We as the church are supposed to be a light, a city on a hill. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus refers to us as a light, a city on a hill, a light that we're not supposed to put under a bushel. Why is it? Why is it that salvation is not going forth from the church like this burning torch, like this flame-throwing instrument? For Zion's sake. Look what the Lord says. I'm going to do this for Zion's sake. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. Her salvation is a lamp that burns. For Zion's sake, for Zion's sake, the Lord is going to show up and salvation is going to burn brightly in Jerusalem like a spotlight that creates a mechanism where darkness is shattered and the truth of God comes to light. And you know what he's talking about. Initially, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus shows up and he burns brightly. Remember in John's Gospel that we've been studying on Sunday morning, it says, In him was light, and that light was the light of the world. Remember, Jesus in John's Gospel says, If anyone comes to me, they'll walk in the light, and and they won't be in the darkness. The church has been assigned the task of delivering the good news of God in Christ. We, as the church, are supposed to be a light. Isaiah's heart, I want you to understand something. Isaiah's heart is broken for God's people in his generation. His heart is broken and his circumstances are broken because he's, he's talking to a people who, for the most part, have forsaken God. But he reminds them of what the Lord says. He's going to do it for Zion's sake. for God's sake and for Christ's sake God wants to transform his people here's the question are people getting saved? yeah are people being healed? yes are people being delivered? yes but for the most part what is happening? How come people aren't being transformed by the gospel? Is it because the gospel is weak? Ineffective? Is it because the gospel is false? Is it because there's a polluted, perverted, distorted, diminished gospel that's being preached? We know that for those people who come to God in Jesus Christ, 
for those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who confess their sin, for those who turn from their sin, for those who receive the Lord Jesus, for those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, for those who live and love and think and breathe the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are changed. We're being molded and shaped Not by the gospel, but by the culture. We're embracing the ethos of this culture. People are much more likely to be molded by Oprah than they are by the church. Because they'll listen and they'll go to church, but they'll go somewhere else. Uh, People watch American Idol and vote in greater numbers for Dancing with the Stars than they do in reading their Bible. People tell me that they've been deeply wounded by the church. They tell me that they've never been voted off Survivor's Island. They tell me that Oprah's never let them down. You know, the worst experiences of my life, the absolute worst experiences of my life have been in the church. The most hateful, the most hurtful words that have ever been spoken to me haven't been spoken on the outside. They've been spoken inside of the church. And the greatest temptation when you've been hurt so bad, when you've been wounded so bad, when you've been disappointed so much, is why should I go back? Why should I go back to the church? Why should I go to a place of condemnation, a place of isolation, a place of rejection? If if I can't be accepted in the church, if I can't be supported in the church, if I can't be helped in the church, if I can't be encouraged in the church, why shouldn't I go back to the world? For the same reason that we're going to learn about in John chapter 6 when Jesus says to his own disciples, Are you going to leave me too? And Peter's reply is going to be, where else can we go? Because only you have the words of life. You see, it's for Zion's sake. It's for Christ's sake. It's for God's sake. God has made an everlasting covenant with the church and her salvation has to go forth like a burning torch. That's the future of the world. Isaiah is showing us a picture of the future, a future when the world is ruled by Christ. And so that burning lamp, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns becomes a type and a picture of that when people look at you and they look at your life and they look at your circumstances and they look at the way you speak and they look at the way you talk and act and they look at at your life and they look at your marriage and they look at your children and they look at the way you conduct business and they look at you and they say, that's what I want. I want joy, and I want peace, and I want forgiveness, and I want hope. But what what do people want when they see you? To leave? I just want to get out of here. I can't deal with this much depression. With this much isolation, with with this many problems. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. 
God is creating a mechanism whereby people watch and they see. And for many, many people, the only testimony that they have concerning the reality of God and the reality of Christ and the truthfulness of the message of hope is in you. And look what it says in verse 2. I know you go, oh, thank God he said verse 2 finally. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. The Gentiles will see your righteousness. The idea being as the Gentiles, the, the, the Gentiles are the nations, it's the rest of the world looking on and they see the righteousness that's found in God's servant, in God's Messiah, and all kings your glory. Now remember what glory is. It's the weight of the substance of who God is. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. Who's given the new name? Is Zion given the new name? Is it the Gentiles that are given the new name? Who's given the new name? I suspect that Jerusalem's the one that's given a new name because it's given a new status. A new character requires a new name. Now, again... God's people have been called Jews. They have been called the children of Jacob. They have been known by many names. In the New Testament, you'll remember that Paul, as he stands before Felix in the book of Acts, as he gives testimony to the people who are listening, and he says, I am a Jew, and I'm the son of a Jew, and I observe the Jewish law, but I am also a follower of the way. In Antioch, while Paul was there, Christians were first called Christians. But is that the name? I suspect that that's not the name either. I think the clue of the new name that's given is found in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 16. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there real quickly and look because it's your name. It says, in those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell safely. That's the context. Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name. This is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord our righteousness. In the, in the Hebrew language it says, Jehovah is our righteousness. Here's your, that's your new name. The new name is you have a right relationship with God and you have friendship with God. Righteousness means, in part, a right standing. It means acceptance on the part of God. Jehovah is the basis of your acceptance before God. Here's the idea. The believer is accounted or reckoned righteous by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. The, that grace is made known in our character and in our conduct. In our character and our conduct, we become a part of redeemed Israel. Are God's people given a new label? Or are they given a new nature? Some of you girls who have gotten married, who have elected to take your husband's name, when you abandoned your own name and you took his name, did your character change? I know what some of you are thinking. Yes, for the worse. I had no idea that when I was going to take his name, I was going to abandon everything good about my name and I was going to embrace everything bad about his name. But here's the idea. 
God's people aren't just given a new label. They're given a new nature. They're given a new heart. They're given a new mind. That's what being born again is all about. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Whatever Jerusalem is, and wherever it is, and however it gets here, it becomes the place where Christians live forever in a right relationship with God through Christ. And we have a new relationship. We are brides adorned for our husband. So Jerusalem is a description of the place where believers dwell in joy. They dwell in fellowship with God. They dwell with His Son throughout eternity. And in verse 3 it says, You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of God and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The redeemed are called a crown of glory in the hand of of the Lord. Now, here the reference is to what what we might call a mitre or a coronet. You'll notice in verse 3 where it says, you shall also be a crown of glory, there's two words, and a royal diadem. The crown and the diadem are two different words in the Hebrew language. But it becomes a description of two different kinds of crowns. One is a crown that's worn by the king. The other crown is a crown that's worn by the priest. And so here the mitre or the coronet is one. And then you have the turban. Now, again, for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll remember that the high priest wore this cool kind of a turban on his head. Twice the word hand is mentioned. But you know what else is interesting about that verse? Read it again. You shall also be, be a crown of glory. Underline that. In the hand, that's the first hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. That's the second hand. But there are two different Hebrew words. The first word, hand, where it says, you shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord. It's an open hand. The open hand of God becomes a type and a picture of his power. In other words, when God extends an open hand to you, that means that he makes available his strength and his power. The second denoting of the palm of the hand is held out for display. In other words, in the Hebrew language, when you extend an open hand, that's one expression. But when you extend a palm, that's the other expression. And here, he's extending the palm of the hand. What does that mean? Well, again, some Hebrew scholars, Bible teachers, they, they suggest that the two together create an intense delight in the heart of the Lord in manifesting His grace and His redeeming power. The one hand being open, the palm being also exposed. But I see something else. Jesus is both the king who is the priest. 
and you are the crown, and you are the diadem. The Bible says in, in the book of Revelation that Jesus bears the scars throughout all eternity of his crucifixion. And so when the king is holding up his palm, I suggest to you that he's also holding up a hole in that palm that becomes a type and a picture of his great love for you of His great sacrifice for you, of His great commitment to you. In other words, you are a picture of His grace and redemption. And the two descriptions, the description of a king and the description of a priest, bring a picture of a uniting of both the civil and the religious community. Remember in the olden times, there were many kings and there were many priests. And during the time of the children of Israel, when a king took on the presumption of the priest, he was going way beyond his role. The kings ruled the government. The priests ruled the covenant community. But Jesus is the king who is also the priest. He is Lord of the civil community and he is Lord of the religious community. And so the redeemed, the body of Christ, the faithful saints are God's delight and God's joy. And look at verse 4. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land anymore be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hepzibah. Some of you might remember that name. Hepzibah, that sounds familiar. Wasn't that the name of the lady on Bewitched? Yeah. But it has nothing to do with that. The Lord delights in you. Now remember what's happened. You shall no longer be called forsaken. They were called forsaken because they felt forsaken. When your city is destroyed and when you're in captivity and you find your place in a, in a place of, of, of horror and pain and isolation, sometimes you feel forsaken, don't you? When you've been abandoned, when you, when you have a failed marriage or failed financial circumstances, you feel left out, you feel forsaken. But now the time is over with, nor, nor shall your land anymore be termed desolate. God is changing the name. And again, um, Ray Ortland writes, and I quote, Here is the meaning of human history. God intends to prove through Christ how much he can love and bless ruined human beings. And his love is the nature of delight. The Jewish people long ago thought that they were forsaken. Sometimes we do too. But God comes and changes the subject. The gospel announces that if you are in Christ, God delights in you. His love must be described with that kind of emotional language. God says, I even have a pet name for you now. I'm going to call you Hepzibah. My delight is in her. Or, And here's the idea. You're no longer... Defined by your past. You are no longer 
defined by your past. If your past is drunk, if your past is drug abuser, if your past is adulterer, if your past is wicked, selfish pervert, if your past is selfish pig, if your past is a person who's preoccupied with themselves, if your past is your failure, you are no longer defined by your past. But God's given you a new name and a new identity and a new circumstance. In a, in a sense, here's what the Lord is doing. The Lord says, not only are you no longer defined by your past, I'm going to redefine you with a new name. And here's the new name that I want to give you. I delight in you. Isn't that amazing? I delight in you. Haven't you ever prayed? Haven't you ever called out to God and go, God, how do you really feel about me? I know what my husband thinks. I know what my wife thinks. I know what my children think. I know what my neighbor thinks. What do you think about me? I delight in you. I'm rewriting your future. And nothing nothing can change it. Now think about that for just a minute. I've changed your past. I am rewriting the present and the future. The name reflects a fully restored relationship with the Lord. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament and you're familiar with the Old Testament writers in the book of Jeremiah and elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, over and over again, the Lord rebukes Israel and Judah for her persistent spiritual infidelity. But now the Lord says, guess what? I am taking you back. And I'm fully restoring the relationship. In verse 5 it says, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Here's the idea. The love of God by Isaiah is likened to the love of a newlywed. Now, some of you are way too young to remember. But there, for those of you who are old like me, there used to be a... Um, a television show called The Newlyweds. And on The Newlyweds, you know, you have these newlywed couples, husbands and wives. Their eyes are still moist from the deep glow of the profound affection that they have for one another. They're living in that world of uh, naivete. So they say the dumbest things. But here's the idea. The love of God is like the love of a newlywed. And so here we have a picture of what we might, might say in a wedding vow. I will have you and I will hold you. One of the great privileges that I have as a pastor is I get to do lots and lots of weddings. 
And as I'm, as I'm conducting the ceremony for lots and lots of weddings, I'm typically standing right next to the, to the poor groom. And when the bride starts coming down the aisle, his eyes sort of roll up and, and his hands start sweating. And, and you can see he becomes visibly shaken. It's at that moment that it makes the whole ceremony worthwhile. It's that take your breath away moment. And so what I do is I typically spoil it by saying, you of course realize that you'll never be this young ever again, and you'll never be this skinny ever again. So shall your God rejoice over you. The type And the picture is vivid with an emotional language. He looks at you and he loves you. That's the same picture that's given in the New Testament of the believer and the believer's relationship to Christ. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Paul likens our relationship, again, like a groom and his bride. In Romans 7, 4, it says, Therefore, my brethren... You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Paul's position is that all of your past obligations and responsibilities have been done away with. So that you could live holy and exclusively and specifically for Jesus. The picture is that your ex-husband or your ex-wife is dead. 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 And you have the full freedom to enjoy your relationship with the Lord. We're joined. We're married to Him who was raised from the dead that we might bring forth fruit unto God. The idea is we're to live with joy. We're to live with honesty, with humility, with holiness, with joy. We are to live like people in whom the Lord delights. The good thing about my job is I get to do lots and lots of weddings. One of the bad things about my job is that sometimes I preside over the funeral not of a dead person but of a dead marriage where a wife comes in and a husband comes in and they inform me that their marriage is over. That because of pain and because of sorrow and because of sin and because of this and because of that through a series of circumstances and painful circumstances, the marriage is over with. But that's not how marriage is supposed to be. So every once in a while when I'm conducting a wedding, I'll say, now repeat after me, I will have you, I will have you, I will hold you, I will hold you. For better or for worse. For better or for worse. And I know what that means. And this is on tape. And I'm giving your husband and I'm giving your wife the freedom to replay this portion of the ceremony when things are not going as well as they should be. I know that that kind of ruins it for the wedding, doesn't it? 
But every once in a while, we need to be reminded that we made holy vows for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And here's what else I say. I don't just end with till death do us part. I say till death do us part or the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Say it. Mm. Mm. Say it. Mm, the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the idea. God will keep his vows. God will keep his vows. God will keep his promises. God will do exactly what he said he would do. And look at verse 6. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who may make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. In verse 6, the watchmen are those who pray, not just for the peace of Jerusalem. The watchmen are those who pray and who call out to God. These are the watchmen who stand on the wall and they refuse to be silent. And they cry out during the day and they cry out during the night. Jerusalem will become the place of salvation. Jerusalem will become the place where all nations will come. Jerusalem will become the place where the Messiah will come. Jerusalem will be the place where all of God's promises will come true. Day and night. Crying out. In every generation. The prophets come and the prophets go and God raises up a new prophet and then God raises up a new prophet after the children of Israel return and they go to Jerusalem. Ezra comes and Nehemiah comes and then there's a series of of people who come and remind the children of Israel that God is going to keep his promises. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent. I know that there are people who hate that. Can't you just shut up? Can't you just stop talking about the Bible? And can't you just stop talking about the promises of God? How can you? If you don't have the promises of God, what do you have? God is calling us to be watchmen on the wall. And as we are watchmen on the wall, we cry out, we pray, and we cry out and we say, God is faithful. God keeps His promises. The promises are true. We are called as watchmen on the wall to keep our ears open and our eyes open. We are to hear what God is doing and we are to see what God is doing as watchmen and women on the wall. We keep our ears open and our eyes open open as we watch and see what God is doing in the current circumstances when it comes to his faithfulness and him keeping his word. And look what it says in verse 7. And give him no rest. Read it for yourself. I'm not making this up. And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now again, This is the kind of language that makes you flinch. And give him no rest till he establishes, till he makes Jerusalem a praise on the earth. I want to, first of all, draw your attention to that word quickly, establishes. The word in the Hebrew language means to make ready. It means to prepare. The idea is a type of preparation for oneself. If you've ever cooked, you've will sometimes cook for others and sometimes you'll cook for yourself. 
And if someone comes to you and says, what are you doing? I'm preparing a meal for my family. Or you say, I am preparing a meal for myself. The preparation here is the preparation that God is making for himself. Here's the idea. Our prayers are to give God no rest until the revived church astonishes the world. Let me repeat that. Our prayers are to give God no rest until a revived church astonishes the world. Here's the idea. We pray, Lord, keep your word. Lord, keep your promise. Lord, make Jerusalem a place of salvation and redemption. And and again, God kept his word, didn't he? He sent Jesus to live and die and rise from the dead. But I think that there's something else. I think that that something else is the reality that God wants to create in our own heart, in our own soul, in our own circumstances as people watch us. God, keep your promise in me. You said you would never leave me or forsake me. God, keep your promise in me. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Lord, make me like Jesus. Lord, make me like you. You are a servant. Make me one too. In Luke chapter 11, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And remember in Luke chapter 11, the Lord teaches them what we normally call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know it. Then Jesus responds again by by um, telling them a parable of the persistent friend. You know the story. In, in um, Luke chapter 11, it begins with uh, a man. He comes knocking at the door in the middle of the night. He's asking for three loaves since a visitor has met him in the night. And the man has nothing to give the visitor. And, and so the, the man in, in the story comes and he starts knocking at the door. And you'll remember in the story of the persistent friend, the guy's not saying this out loud, but he's thinking to himself, go away. Go away. My children are in bed. It is midnight. I am asleep. I don't need this. I don't want this. But the guy keeps knocking and the guy keeps knocking and the guy keeps knocking. And finally, the guy gets up and says, look, what is it that you want? I need three loaves because the guy came in the middle of the night. I have nothing to offer. him." And then Jesus basically says, so. I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. In other words, Jesus is saying if a, if a person with impure motives is willing to give you just to get you out of, your, of his hair, how much more your father who loves you is willing to give you all things in Christ. Keep asking, it says. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. So what does God want you to do? Pray. And to continue to pray. But have you stopped? Have you stopped caring? Have you stopped asking? I wonder how many miracles. I wonder how many blessings. I I wonder how many missed opportunities have taken place because we just simply stopped. But look what it says in verse 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength 
Surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies, and the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored. When it says that he's sworn by his right hand, it's an idiom in the Hebrew language, which means he's swearing in such a way by his own strength. By the way, what is it that God can't do? Well, yeah, you're right. God can't lie. God can't sin. God can't break his promise. This is the classic question that was always asked the priest when I was growing up. Well, Father, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Well, you know, that's a bit of a mystery. You can't be sure about the answer to all of those mysterious things. No, the right answer is God's not an idiot. He's not going to make a rock so big that even he can't lift it. Grow up. The idea is that God can do all things by the power of his might. And he's willing to. For when God made a promise to Abraham, it says in Hebrews 6.13, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. On what basis will you keep your promise? On the basis that I have the ability to do anything I want, whenever I want, under whatever circumstances that I desire. That's a pretty good. That's pretty good. On what basis will you keep your promise? Because I am who I say that I am, and I am not a man that I should lie. Neither the son of man that I should repent. God can't go back on his word. And he promises to feed them. And provide that for them. In verse 9, but those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink in my holy courts. The picture is a future picture of complete redemption and reconciliation. And then in verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for, it can be translated, the Gentiles or the people. Remember, John the Baptist said, prepare the way of the Lord, removing the rocks. That's the idea. Clear the way, remove the obstacles. Take every single obstacle out of the way. Everything that's an obstacle to spiritual blessing will be removed from the hearts of Israel. But again, there's a physical application and there's a spiritual application. One of the applications is God is going to remove every obstacle that gets in his way that tries to thwart his promise. That's application number one. The other application is the practical application. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. You're creating a superhighway. Take out the stones. The idea is remove every single obstacle that keeps you from enjoying the promises of God. What obstacles are you facing right now? What challenges are keeping you from walking in the way that you want to walk with God? What are the obstacles? Is it getting up in the morning? Is it having a quiet time? Is it reading your Bible? Is it staying in in fellowship? Is it avoiding 
sinful circumstances? What is it? What is the obstacle? What is the obstacle that, that you're facing? Is it apathy and indifference? Is it, are you on fire for the Lord when people look at you and they see the burning desire that is in your heart to love Him and to know Him and to serve Him? Is your apathy and indifference an obstacle? Is your failure to serve an obstacle? Um, are you still struggling with the idea of what it means to know God? Are you still struggling with the idea of, of obeying God? What is the stumbling block? What is, what is it that's hindering your enjoyment of free and constant access to the God who loves you? What is it that's standing in your way with communion with God? What is it that needs to be removed? What is the garbage? What is the rubbish? What is the filthy associations and the fleshly desires that keep you from walking in joy. What is it? Get rid of it. Ted Rendell writes, perhaps the greatest barrier to revival on a large scale is the fact that we're too interested in a great display. We want an exhibition. God is looking for a man who will throw himself entirely on God whenever self-effort, self-glory, self-seeking, self-promotion enters the work of revival. Then God leaves us to ourselves. Revival has become almost a joke in Christianity. They put a placard out, out. Revival. We're having revival this weekend. But revival isn't something that you work up. And revival isn't something that you put on a sign. Revival is something that begins inside of your heart when you ask God to light the fire that's within you. As a matter of fact, in verse 11, look what it says. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world. Say to the daughter of Zion... Surely your salvation is coming. Surely his reward is with him and his work before him. In the New Living Translation, it says in verse 11, The Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, Look, your Savior is coming. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. This is exactly what John had in mind when he writes in the book of Revelation. The Lord is coming and his reward is with him. In the early church, you know what they would say? The Lord is coming. And you know how they would say that? They would say, Maranatha. There was a song we used to sing. The master went away from us 2,000 years ago. He left us with his promise to return. Oh, how our hearts do long for him. We miss the master, so we must keep the faith and let the fire burn. But some of you have let the fire go out. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. I don't have time to tell you the prophecies that were fulfilled in Isaiah's lifetime. And I don't have time to tell you the more prophecies that were fulfilled after Isaiah's time. But before we complete our study in the book of Isaiah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell you about the prophecies that were fulfilled in Isaiah's lifetime. And then I'm going to tell you about the prophecies that were fulfilled way after Isaiah. 
But I often wonder if Isaiah knew which prophecies would be fulfilled in his lifetime and which wouldn't. And if every morning he woke up and he said, Today, maybe this day my beloved will come. Gypsy Smith was once asked how to have a revival. You know what he said? Kneel down and with a piece of chalk, draw a complete circle all around you and pray to God to send a revival on everything inside the circle. And then he said something else. Stay there. Stay there. Stay there until he answers you. Now, I would ask you to draw a circle and pray that prayer. But I know some of you got to go get your kids and you have a life. But at some point, under some circumstance, you might do well to draw a circle and get inside that circle and pray that God sends a revival inside that circle and then you remain there until He does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would find ourselves in communion with You and friendship with You. Lord, we pray that we would find ourselves surrendering ourselves to the love of the Father to the love of the Son, to the testimony and the power and the affection of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would find ourselves surrendering ourselves to You, knowing that that's going to be the most complete expression of love. Lord, we pray as a church that people would see the fire burning and that they would be curious. They would be curious about what it means to have a life of love and joy and peace, of what it means to have a life of hope and forgiveness, of what it means to have a life of joy. Lord, we pray that you would bring the burning torch of salvation. Lord, we pray that we would place it in the window of our hearts. Lord, we pray that it would burn bright enough for a watching world to see it. Lord, I pray for these men and women. Lord, you're going to keep your promise to each and every one of them. And we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.